This is episode eight, protecting against disinformation with Alethea Group founder and CEO, Lisa Kaplan. You're listening to The Business of Intelligence, a podcast that explores how intelligence serves decision makers beyond the traditional national security audience. Tune in as we connect with some of the world's leading practitioners working at the intersection of business and risk in order to analyze and discuss the field of private sector intelligence. We'll talk about what's working, what isn't, and how intelligence is helping organizations navigate today's global operating environment. Welcome to the Business of Intelligence, the podcast that explores the field of private sector intelligence and how intelligence helps organizations navigate risk and realize opportunity. Michael, good to be with you as always, and Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Ryan, and Happy New Year's to everyone out there listening. Yeah, so listen, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you. This is the first podcast of 2022, and we're really excited about it. But any resolutions for the new year? (laughs) Well, I think one we'll get into in a minute, but obviously it's to get TBOI on top of its game. Also, I think on a personal level, now that I'm living back in the States, just get some organization back in my life, hit the gym on a regular basis, be healthy, all that good stuff. You know, I think we'll probably talk about this, but also get back on the road and do some traveling. How about you? Yeah, I think that's number one for me. I mean, I'm thinking about my reading list for this year. I'm thinking about the habits that I want to try to stick to. We'll see how long they last, but those that I want to try to stick to throughout the year. But yeah, you're right. I mean, it's travel. It's getting back in the saddle and getting out there. Travel's a passion for both of us. It's been so long. It's so frustrating. And I know for a lot of people listening too, but I think 2022 is going to be our year. You know, knock on wood, we've got a fantastic conference coming up on protective intelligence in Austin next month, hosted by a fantastic company called Ontic. So I know we're really excited about that. And then we have the Pulse 360 CSO conference in Madrid in March. So really excited about that. Yeah, I can't say enough about the both. I'm hoping to be there, especially Spain. Always has a near and dear spot in my heart, especially Madrid. Definitely looking forward to seeing our European folks out there. I know we joke around about this all the time, but you like to label me as the quote-unquote planner, which I think is a compliment, but maybe not. I'm not sure. And I know you're kind of fly by the seat of your pants. You know, you're really good on the on the fly. So let me sort of put you on the spot right now with one of our rapid-fire questions that we normally ask our guests. It's around travel. So no constraints whatsoever. COVID, financial, it doesn't matter. If you could go anywhere right now, what would be number one on your bucket list? I think I'll give two answers. I think absolute bucket list, no limitations. We're always talking about animals. I'd really like to get to New Zealand or Australia and just see all the wildlife down there. It's always kind of been a dream of mine. Kangaroos, koalas, the whole nine yards, Tasmanian devils. I think probably on the more realistic front, I think I'm looking to do a repeat, which I usually, I don't always want to do repeats, but, you know, it's been being on lockdown just thinking back to so many good experiences I had in Mexico, Mexico City, Italy, Spain, Portugal, Eastern Europe. I have a lot of buddies in some of those places that I didn't get a chance to see for a couple of years. So I'd love to reconnect. You know, I know some of those places on your list, so it'd be cool to hopefully we can try to coordinate something like we've done before. How about you? 
Yeah, first of all, I would, I'll be your travel partner any day. You know that. I think all those places sound great. And I love animals, but you do know that like almost every species of animal in Australia is poisonous, right? Whether it's snakes <laughs> or spiders, but I'm just kidding. I, I actually <laughs> love that stuff, but you're right. I mean, we both love animals. We both love nature, the outdoors. I guess a weird fact for everyone. I love big cats. I love leopards. So I've always wanted to go to Sri Lanka. There's a national park there and it, the name escapes me right now, but I think they have one of the highest concentrations of leopards. And so I would just love to visit that country. And then obviously Africa comes to mind and whether it's Rwanda, Rwanda is high on the list. It could be Uganda, Democratic Republic of Congo, but for mountain gorillas, it's definitely on my bucket list. And, you know, we've talked about this before. We're worried about how long they're going to live and if they're going to be able to sustain themselves. So I would love to get to one of those places before they're gone. I mean, speaking of that, I got to say all those places, but especially Uganda, when I was spending time in the Horn of Africa, that was the one place I wanted to get to, to, to see the gorillas and it just didn't happen timing wise. And then had another shot when a friend of mine was actually stationed in the U S embassy in Uganda and COVID kind of killed that. So yeah, I really want to try to make that happen. We all need something to look forward to. So that's definitely something for us. So for everyone else today, our guest is Alethea Group founder and CEO, Lisa Kaplan. But actually, before we get to Lisa, we did want to share a few things with everybody just as we kick off the year because it's the first episode. And so I'll get started. And then, Michael, you, you jump in here at any time. I think what we both wanted to start with was just some gratitude and to share thanks with everyone for being so supportive, for listening to us, podcast ideas, feedback, constructive criticism, which there has been. And we really appreciate that. And then, of course, all the guests that have participated I mean, the truth is, when we got started with this, it was really just a passion project. We wanted to have fun. We wanted to scratch our own itch, if you will, in terms of just talking about some of these issues. We wanted to make sure that this thing could be sustainable. You know, we've got no shortage of ideas and people that have volunteered to be on. And I think also we wanted to make sure this was going to be helpful to others. And based on all the feedback that we've gotten so far, I think that is the case. So having said that, we're definitely going to get into more of a routine cadence. Uh, we have a specific monthly cadence in mind, multiple episodes a month, mostly with guests, but you and I are going to tackle a handful of different topics as well, which I'm excited about. In fact, I think our next episode or maybe the one after, and if you don't mind, I'll give everyone a sneak preview, but it's going to be about the art of influence and why that's important. So I can't wait for that. But yeah, more of a routine cadence. What else do you want to share with everyone? Yeah, I think uh, along with everything you just said, I mean, you've been putting a lot of hard work on this, rolling out the website. And, you know, I think an exciting part of that will be having a blog within there. And, you know, we've both been speaking to a lot of the people we're getting feedback from. And there are some really interesting people and great jobs who maybe don't have the time or the permissions or whatever it might be to to come on the the actual podcast, but said they'd be willing and able to write, which would be just as exciting. We're definitely looking forward to that. Just uh, another thing, just kind of on a marketing front, just trying to get the word out that we do have our TBOI site on LinkedIn and more people that follow it, the more we can get the word out quicker. And, you know, we've been getting personal DMs, which is great, but also feel free to use the TBOI one as well. Did I miss anything, Ron? 
No, I, th- I think that's it. That's good. I mean, we're really excited about all those things. The website, more of a LinkedIn presence, just more of a steady cadence. And I think we've gotten past a lot of the hurdles we initially encountered. There's so many stories. We were joking earlier in the green room that maybe we should have a bloopers episode because I don't think anyone realizes some of the things that we've been through. And I'll just share one quick example. I mean, one of our earlier episodes, I think it might have been number two or three, but you were overseas in Rome in a hotel. At first, I thought you were in a conference room, but then I realized you were actually in like a phone booth or something. It seemed like it was 110 degrees. You were sweating. <laughs> I didn't know if you were going to make it. I think there was barely internet and uh, somehow you powered through and we made it happen. But those are the types of conditions that we've encountered the last few months. So, <laughs> Yeah, no, absolutely. And I miss Europe, but I'm very happy to be back in my Washington, D.C., Arlington Wi-Fi zone where uh, I think we have a lot more stable connections. And uh, yeah, I think I'll always have fond memories and also a certain degree of mental scarring from being in that uh, phone booth for two hours. (laughs) Yeah, I'm I'm glad you made it. It was a close one there. All right. So the title of this episode with Lisa is Protecting Against Disinformation. And, you know, we obviously we had a ton of fun and we learned a lot from Lisa. So what was the importance, do you think, of of doing this episode? Because I know you really wanted to do this one. And any other big highlights or takeaways from from this episode? Yeah, I mean, I think it's particularly timely just with everything going on right now in, in the Ukraine and Russia situation having worked with influence operations in Eastern Europe and Latin America. It's a topic that's near and dear to my heart, but I think it's one of those things that it's so important and it's everywhere, yet I think a lot of people either just don't know it or haven't had a chance to hear what it is or have maybe heard of it but don't know how they can use it or process the information to impact what they're doing in their own lives or what their Intel program is doing in and for the company. So, uh, you know, I think she really broke it down into very cogent, succinct way of what it is and how we as intelligence professionals can utilize it to help our decision makers. Yeah, I think that's really well said. We don't want to give too much away. We hope everyone listens, but I I think it's a great episode. So, Why don't you uh, tell everyone a little bit about Lisa, and then we'll dive in. Absolutely. I'm about to read a bio summary right off Lisa's webpage, but, you know, just wanted to say real quick that, you know, I had the fortune to meet Lisa, I think, a month after she had started Aletheia Group. She was at the ARIP conference in Chicago, and we got seated next to each other at one of the events, and it's really exciting to see how she and Aletheia Group have evolved over the last two plus years now. So it was really a personally exciting thing to have her on the show. But to the bio, Lisa Kaplan founded Aletheia Group to help organizations navigate the new digital reality and protect themselves against disinformation. At Aletheia Group, Lisa advises government entities to Fortune 1000s companies on how to detect and mitigate instances of disinformation and misinformation to protect their ability to communicate with their constituents, brands, and bottom lines. She writes for the Brookings Institute and Lawfare on countering disinformation and protecting democratic institutions, and she is widely featured in numerous media outlets to include the New York Times, NPR, BBC, Washington Post, Axios, and MSNBC. One of the things that I want to highlight, which I think is 
the most important and most impressive is as a longtime reader of Forbes magazine, Lisa was recognized by Forbes as one of the 30 under 30 for her work to combat disinformation and recognized as Washington, D.C.'s one of the most powerful women in 2021, which is just incredible. You know, I can't say enough good things about her. And Ryan, did I miss anything? No, I mean, there's so much. I think you hit all the highlights. I guess we'd be remiss if we didn't mention the fact that Lisa is from the great state of Maine. And we had some fun, you know, talking to Maine. So we're going to give some love to Maine, the state of Maine on this episode. She's also a native of Washington, D.C. right now and a graduate of Colby College. So again, we really think you're all going to enjoy this episode. So without further delay, here is the absolutely remarkable Lisa Kaplan on protecting against disinformation. Hey, Lisa, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. It's our pleasure. In our introduction that Ryan already recorded, we kind of went through the formal side of your background. But, you know, if you could just share with us, what was your inspiration and your origin story for Aletheia Group? Yeah, definitely. So I cut my teeth on this whole issue around disinformation when I was working on Senator Angus King's re-election campaign back in 2018. And I always say that the big difference between 2018 and 2016 is that we were finally starting to really learn the details about what the Russian government did to interfere in the United States elections by running these influence operations. And so I was the third hire on the campaign, and there's not a lot to do on a campaign in Maine in January. Um, And it was right around the time that Special Investigator Robert Mueller's indictment came out of the Russians and how they did it. And I don't think he was writing that necessarily to hope that the Russians were going to get extradited and stand trial in the United States for this operation. However, it did lay out the playbook of what they did and how they did it. And so we took that and we said, how would we know if and when this happened to us? We had to be prepared. There was no reason to assume that it wouldn't happen again because there hadn't really been any consequences. And so we developed a way to proactively go out and detect instances of disinformation and misinformation early before it became a challenge for us. With that, though, we really did learn a lot because when you're running on an independent campaign against a Democrat and a Republican, you see disinformation on both sides. We also saw disinformation targeting companies and we saw it targeting the NFL, for example, and we were able to mitigate by getting a lot of content removed by launching our own productive messaging campaigns to make sure that people had information around one way or how to vote. And so we took these strategies and we were able to, to successfully avoid any, any incidents. The other thing that I would say is it really shaped my thinking around disinformation, not necessarily being a political issue, but an issue that manifested itself in politics. Politics, elections, it's almost like playing a sports game. You look up at the end and you see who won and you know how you did. But there are consistent operations against other topics as well. Take 5G, for example. And so getting off the campaign trail, you know, we won. Winning is fun. And decided that I wanted to continue working on this issue. I had learned a lot. I'm telling this is the first time I'm telling this part of the origin story publicly. We were just chatting about it in the green room. But then I went to a big company to try to stand up a countering disinformation practice. 
And it just wasn't working. And I decided the day my first mortgage payment was due, um, I had just closed on my place and I had had it. I was ready to go um, stand up this company and uh, <laughs> be able to help more people and more quickly because we were headed into the 2020 elections, which was going to be a huge challenge for not just campaigns, but companies, specific groups. We see individuals get targeted all the time. And so I quit my job. I got walked out by security. And then the next day I started a company. And I said to myself, I'm going to give it my shot. And if it doesn't work in six months, I'll get a job. And two and a half years later, almost three years later, here we are. Wow. Love the grit. So cool. Grit is definitely required if you're thinking about starting a company. (laughs) Definitely. Hey, real quick. So I think, you know, I have my understanding and probably everyone's a little different view of it. So maybe you could set a baseline when when we're defining misinformation and disinformation. What's your take? Yeah, it's a great question. And those terms actually do have a really important and distinct meaning. So disinformation is the deliberate and coordinated spread of falsehoods by an actor who's trying to achieve a goal. So that goes back to think, again, the Russian government. We also see sometimes these for-profit entities that will spin up and be able to spread disinformation themselves. The really key component that makes it disinformation is that it's deliberate. Somebody is trying to get people to believe something that isn't true. Misinformation, it's different. It's still the spread of falsehoods. But there's no malicious intent behind it. So maybe you see something, it's not true, and you share it. So if you think back to the early days of the pandemic, for example, when we didn't know what was happening, do we wear masks? Do we not wear masks? Do we need to social distance? How does this thing even spread? Can it get through the HVAC? That's the kind of misinformation that was being spread a lot by really well-intentioned people who are just trying to keep their communities safe. The one thing I will say as well, though, is there's a relationship between disinformation and misinformation. Sophisticated bad guys know how the First Amendment works here in the United States. And so they will do things like strategically amplify misinformation, or they will rely on misinformation to further the information flow that they seeded, but now their handprints are no longer on it. Wow. Great background. So, you know, I think uh, especially coming from the public sector the last few years, to spin it around a bit. So if I'm the CEO of a multinational company and not a government official, why should I care about mis and disinformation? Isn't it just a political issue? And, and if not, why so? Definitely not just a political issue. I think it, one of the unfortunate things about our new digital reality, and I actually view this as the next iteration of cybersecurity, is everybody is going to end up being targeted. And I don't want to sound too, I don't know, alarmist, but we see it all the time, every day. So when you think back to what cybersecurity looked like a couple decades ago, it was guys and guns outside of these storage rooms, making sure that nobody could get into your servers. The next iteration is we have things like firewalls, antivirus, anti-malware, that sort of thing. How do you stop people from getting into your computer systems and taking information out? Now we're at this phase where how do you protect your stakeholders, whether that's your customers, whether that's your clients, whether that's your shareholders, whether that's your investors, from making sure that they have accurate information about your company. So what does that mean for your license to operate if everybody thinks that your CEO kicks dogs? What does it mean? Are you going to be targeted by a short seller attack, for example? These types of online coordination and social media manipulation will ultimately impact 
everybody. And we see it all the time. We also see too disinformation networks opportunistically mentioning certain organizations in order to try to build momentum or reach certain audiences around whatever narrative they're pushing. But the thing about disinformation is it's a distributed risk. So it's not just one person in most organizations. I think five, 10 years from now, we probably will have one person who is dedicated to protecting an organization against disinformation threats. Now what we see is legal action when we get to the point of attribution and there's a misappropriation of intellectual property. That's coming from the general counsel's office. Counter communications campaigns. That's coming from comms, being able to protect the organization from physical security threats stemming from disinformation. The most infamous and recent example being the insurrection attempt at the Capitol on January 6th. That's coming from security teams. And so to really counter disinformation, to protect a company's value, it's really about getting those teams the insights that they need and enabling them to work effectively together across the organization. Hey, Lisa, it's Ryan. I want to come back to that concept of distributive risk. We've talked about that before, and I think we should flush that out just a little bit. It's really interesting. Before we do that, I have a couple of questions. And the first one is very, very serious. And I just want to get your expertise on this. So during the pandemic, if one of my relatives was telling everybody on Facebook that COVID was being brought to the U.S. by Al-Qaeda via airplanes, is that misinformation or is that disinformation? <laughs> <laughs> that would be well it depends are they doing that to achieve a goal are they are they no that's misinformation and listen i mean we all have it we all in our lives in our families that sort of thing because it works it targets our own confirmation biases so we'll see something and we'll say oh my god i have to share this article it is so spicy that al-qaeda would bring covid to the united states with airplanes everybody must know and be warned that's a real thing that happens. But no, that is misinformation. Okay. All right. Thank you for bearing <laughs> with me. <laughs> Unless they're doing it deliberately and then it's disinformation. Okay. All right. Good. Good stuff. Good to know. So listen, you, you were just talking about the importance of organizations understanding this risk, thinking about it, mitigating against it. It's not just a political issue. So let's take it down to the practitioner level for a second. We uh, have this audience of risk management and intelligence practitioners out there what role can the individual practitioner play in managing this risk or identifying this risk? So we all have a role when it comes to combating disinformation, no matter where you sit within an organization. So just to break it into a lot of the buckets that we see, for security teams and for intel teams, we've seen it's really an opportunity to lead and help your colleagues understand how to take a risk management approach to roles that wouldn't traditionally have that view or framework. And it depends, every organization is different, but we often find so that security teams and intelligence teams are well positioned to be that person to ingest and understand what's happening online and be able to help triage across an organization for mitigation. Everything we do at Aletheia Group is action-oriented. We want to be able to help people navigate this new digital reality. I think for communications teams, it's a little bit different. For a lot of communications teams, it's the first time that they've had to almost think like Intel officers, right? Be able to look at, who, is there a persistent challenge that's coming up online with digital teams? That is a situation where being able to just even spot and recognize that and be able to triage that back over to the security teams and be able to say, hey, can you dig into this? Or this domain keeps popping up or whatever it is can go a long way. So I think reading skeptically. The other piece I would say is when it comes to 
identifying opportunities even for legal action. The people who are spreading disinformation campaigns often don't care very much about things like the law. However, that being said, there are legal actions that companies can and do take in order to protect themselves. So, for example, if there's a misappropriation of intellectual property, if something is false and defamatory, you do have the option to protect yourself using your legal teams to be able to help resolve any challenges that you're having online because no company deserves to be targeted by these types of attacks. Excellent. Yeah, thank you so much for that explanation. So just thinking about this thing as a distributive risk, and I have a hard time saying that, so I apologize. But we talked about it before. You just mentioned how it's something that moves across the organization. So can we just dive a little bit deeper in terms of what do you mean by that? How is it distributive? And then just to ask a follow-up right away is, you know, how can you make that risk part of everyone's portfolio? Because as you just said, it's going to matter to legal and they're going to have a role to play security, intelligence, comms. So is there anything that we can do to just sort of help that process along and make it part of everyone's portfolio? Definitely. I think this is where training is huge. Just teaching people the basics and giving people a framework for how to think about disinformation and how it could impact their role. The roles that we've talked about, those are some examples, but imagine also a strategy and operations team. If they're seeing disinformation that a supplier is using child labor, for example, and it's not true, wouldn't you rather know that one, it's not true, two, it's actually be coming from a competitor or something like that so that you're not all of a sudden trying to switch suppliers overnight and you're able to deal with it using one of the other means? So being able to provide that training, I think, is really important because when you think about it, we all rely upon information in order to make decisions. And so we need to know if the information that we're seeing is coming from something that's networked and coordinated so that we can then determine using other data sets that we might have available. So in companies, there's typically internal data sets that you're able to check against. News media, that sort of thing. Being able to check against that sort of information is also really critical. So when I say it's a distributed risk, what I really mean is, Yes, there can be an owner within the organization, but it will ultimately impact everybody's function within the organization if you don't have access to accurate information or know where your information is coming from. Yeah, just a quick plug for everyone listening. I mean, I think the challenge with that is you know it's going to affect multiple functions across the business. It's not just going to be a siloed risk. And so this is what I love about intelligence functions, because I think oftentimes one of the roles we play are as sort of alignment officers, if you will, and bridge builders. Bringing people together on an issue like this is really important. I think an important role that intelligence functions can play. So it might be a big opportunity out there for everyone when it comes to us risk. So let me ask one more follow-up and then Michael, I'll turn it back to you for the next couple of questions. But, you know, there's obviously people out there listening that either lead intelligence teams or some form of, of risk management team. So if I'm sitting here and I'm trying to prepare my team to deal with the risk of disinformation, you know, what characteristics, qualities, or training, as you just mentioned, what are some things that we should all be thinking about so we can better combat this? So one of my favorite things that we do is tabletop exercises, red team, blue team, really scenario plan. Because when it comes to disinformation, I truly believe it's not 
an if, it's a when. And digital moves really fast. So being able to be prepared in order to understand how you would act, what are some of those key thresholds? Who needs to be bought in as a stakeholder? How are you going to determine who needs to sign off on what? Because you might be in a situation where the key decision maker as to whether or not to issue a statement may not be available because of whatever reason. Who's the backup? Who's going to be the person who gets the information out the door? And so I really think having teams understand also their threshold for risk and mitigation is really helpful. So we've had clients, for example, where they've had the opportunity to take a legal action and they don't want to. That's just not in their risk calculus. They don't want the potential press. We've had clients where every time we come up with something, they're writing a cease and desist letter. So every organization is also going to have their own risk tolerance when it comes to mitigation. And it's really just a question of understanding what makes the most sense for your organization and your goals based on common scenarios that you may face. Elisa, follow-up question to that. So, you know, just from what you've seen in different places, When they're doing the red team, blue team, how are different departments being brought in? Like, do you ever see where there's obviously people missing and, you know, how can Intel teams work themselves into it if they're being excluded? Yep. So we typically recommend that the way um, we do these red team, blue team exercises, it actually is designed to be for the people who are going to be key decision makers when it comes to mitigation. So, you know, we'll have two people from legal, we'll have two people from comms, people who can represent their functions within the organization. The one other thing is sometimes we throw in a purple team, which are people like the K-pop stands who just show up from time to time and like to stir the pot because that can also just throw a wrench in your really well thought out plan because this is the internet. Like there are no rules. I think being able to really bring teams together though, like it's also great because you're breaking down organizational silos too. You're working together in a proactive way instead of just during a crisis. So really focusing on bringing together teams that are going to have to work together should you face and when you face a threat from disinformation so that everybody's on board and understands what they want to do and when. And I guess so, you know, as Intel practitioners and risk managers, what's something we're not seeing or something we're not thinking about right now that we should be thinking about, especially day-to-day practical, but also for exercises so we're we're sure we're uh, aware for everything? I would say a couple things. And it really, again, depends on the individual, the organization, and the goals. But I think one of the things that we often hear when it comes to issues like disinformation is I think especially people around the organization, especially people who aren't necessarily in Intel or security, but are key decision makers who need to be part of this process of mitigation, they hear it and they think, you know what? U.S. government has this one covered. There's no way that we would ever get targeted. Like, this stuff is illegal anyways. The social media platforms are totally on top of it. We hear that a lot. And instead of realizing that people can actually be empowered to do something about it, you can get these early insights and you can win against these adversaries. So I would really encourage people to think about How can you either with your existing systems or, you know, by blending teams and operations or bringing on new tooling, additional support, how can you get to a point where you can actually be proactive? How can you form KPIs so that you're getting credit for avoiding a crisis altogether instead of dealing with a crisis after it started? And that's where we really see organizations, I think, get excited about being able to do something about this threat. You don't have to wait for it to come to you. You can go to it and you can put out the fire before it starts. 
Yeah. So just a follow up, and I think you just gave the answer, but let me let me ask it anyway because there might be some additional things. And if you already answered it, we'll just move on. But I've heard a lot of people say, "Listen, this is a, a wicked problem," meaning we're never going to solve this problem. It's just never going to get fixed. So, I mean, are there solutions or concrete things that organizations can do now to address this? And I think you just hit on a bunch, but if you want to pivot away from the organizational level, maybe what about at the individual level, things that people can do? Definitely. So I will start by saying lying to achieve a goal is quite literally as old as time. Like that is not what's new and novel about disinformation and misinformation. What I will say, though, is what is new is the way that we engage with information and the speed at which we engage with information. The internet doesn't have an editor. And so one of the things that we need to do as individuals, and this is something that you can start doing today as you're going into work or, you know, it's a pandemic, so maybe you're just going into your living room to go to work. But the idea being you can start to read more critically and look for some of the telltale signs of disinformation and misinformation. Digital media literacy is huge. So if you're reading a social media post, whether it's your Twitter feed, Facebook, look at the source and read the way that you would read a newspaper. Same, especially with websites and blogs. Who's writing it? Where is it coming from? Is this a reputable source? Is there bias in here? Does it seem too sensational, too outlandish to be true? Because if so, it's probably not true. Those are the sorts of skills and that digital media literacy that are so important. I think also understanding how the social media algorithms work. Algorithms are not necessarily good or bad. I think that there's a lot of improvements that could be made. But one thing to realize is everybody's algorithms and what we see is completely different from person to person. So for example, my algorithm, when I go on Twitter, I mostly see national security people. I mostly see New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post. I don't really see a lot of cable news, TV, anything like that. It's pretty middle of the road, but that doesn't mean that content's not out there. And just because I'm not seeing it doesn't mean that other people aren't. And so also understanding how algorithmic biases could potentially inform our worldview is also really important. And then the one last thing to say about the algorithms is they are designed in such a way so that you're only really seeing information that it thinks you want to see based on the information that you're engaging with. So if you are somebody who is only reading The Intercept, you're probably never going to organically see Breitbart. Choosing those two sources, which tend to be a little bit more, I would say, politically leaning one on the right and on the left and a little more sensational Because what does that mean if people only see and therefore only believe one side over the other? Um, So I would encourage you if you're like noticing a pattern. So even for myself, I proactively go out and I see what people are saying, what the Breitbart's writing about, what the Intercept is writing about, because it helps me to understand what other viewpoints are. So if you are somebody who's only seeing one source, you can change your algorithm by engaging with different sources. Yeah, I think for everyone listening, I think you just heard some amazing tips to help you develop some analytic tradecraft around this. So thank you so much for that, Lisa. Michael, what do you think? A couple more questions, and then we'll go into the rapid fire. I've got one or two that I can think of here that I wanted to ask. That last point was just so critical. I mean, I almost kind of want to double tap it and and maybe even go deeper or just readdress it. Because, you know, I think everybody has to some some extent confirmation bias. So like, what's some advice, you know, how to know yourself and how to check your own bias and reach out and, and see other perspectives? 
Definitely a great question. Um, I think, so I'm going to be honest, and I'm going to tell a time that I fell for disinformation because I think it's important. This is back again at the beginning of the pandemic. So now it, it feels like a million years ago. But remember, we had literally no idea what was going on. All we knew is that New York hospitals were filling up, that people were dying, that we couldn't, we didn't know if we could go outside. We didn't know if it was safe to be around other people. And there was this mass text message that was going around D.C. that was basically saying that the Trump administration was going to implement the Stafford Act, which essentially means like a nationwide lockdown sort of thing. And I had received misinformation about that. A friend of mine who would have been somebody who would have known if that were happening because it's Washington, D.C. and it's a very small town sent me a text that basically summarized the mass text and was like, hey, just a heads up, like you should probably go to the grocery store. So I'm sending that to my mother. I'm sending that to like everybody I know. I'm like, we're about to go to nationwide lockdown. Also remember, this was a time where you just literally couldn't buy spaghetti anymore because everybody had been stockpiling. And so that is an instance of disinformation, misinformation, and confirmation bias. Like, it works. I didn't know what was happening with the pandemic. I didn't know if I was going to end up in a hospital or something like that. And thank God I haven't. But like, that's the kind of thing where it works because it preys on people's fear. In this case, fear for being able to access goods and resources, anxiety about what's happening in the world. It was a really scary time. And it was sensational. And had I, you know, stopped and thought about it, I would have said, okay, well, first of all, there's already enough food at home. And, you know, second of all, it's the kind of thing where it's a little bit too outlandish to be true, right? That all of a sudden, everybody in DC would know that this is happening and there wouldn't be a formal press conference. Like, that's just not how that works either. Yeah, that's that's probably about the same time one of my relatives was saying COVID was being brought in via airplanes by Al Qaeda. So, exactly. Um, yeah, I think we've all been victims to, of misinformation and disinformation. It's just we're living in this information-driven world. I mean, it's the air that we breathe. So, I wouldn't feel bad. I know I've I've felt victim a couple of times myself. So. We're human. Uh, yeah, it works. Exactly, it works. That's. Uh, I mean, it's such it's such a great point. So, speaking of humans, I do want to ask one other follow up, and it really revolves around people because one of the common themes of all of our shows, regardless of the topic, is the idea of building successful teams. What are the characteristics and qualities and traits that it takes? And so, I'm just curious. I mean, you are you're running the successful business. I think you've had some, I know you have some phenomenal teammates on your team within your company. So what are some common characteristics of people on your team? What are things that you look for? What are some things that you think are important for building a great team? Definitely. And it's something that I think about all the time. So when it comes to building a team, I think the first thing obviously is skills. So we're looking for people who have really great OSINT skills. They're really talented engineers. They're really talented data scientists. And I think those sorts of hard skills are definitely something that we look for. The other thing that we look for, though, and this is harder to quantify, and it's more of a a culture thing. We look for people who are the kind of people who, again, want to run towards a fire instead of away from it. 
One of the things that's been really, I think, rewarding about this company is there has yet to be a major world issue that we haven't been able to help out with. Everything from, obviously, we've been talking a lot about the pandemic, but also elections, the withdrawal from Afghanistan, Michigan militias, the January 6th stuff. Like, we've done a lot of really great work that the team is really proud of, and I'm really proud of them in terms of being able to make a difference with some of these major crises. And so that's definitely something that we look for. The other thing is we hire for kindness. Life's too short to work with people who are mean. (laughs) Like It's just, you know, and the other thing I think that's really important is building a culture, especially with this issue set where diversity of thought, perspective, background is encouraged. And it's something that we celebrate. And it's something that enables us to push each other to provide a better product. So diversity is actually part of our business case. The reason for that is since disinformation targets our biases, we need a diverse team who can identify those different biases. And that makes us stronger and more effective. I mean, excellent advice. I think everyone would do well to listen to that and take some of those things on board. So one more follow-up and then Michael, I'll turn it over to you to start taking us home. But well, actually, let me back up a step. First of all, Michael, I think we need a TBOI Hall of Fame in terms of quotes and sayings. And Lisa, I think you're going to be the inaugural member because... I'm honored. Yeah. So so far, I've written down, the internet doesn't have an editor. I love that. <laughs> Run toward the fire and not away from it. Love that as well. Although that makes me scared. And when, my favorite is winning is fun. I think... I'm, winning is so fun. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Sorry. No, it's amazing. <laughs> winning is fun. I love that. So, but it, okay. In all seriousness, last quick follow-up from my end. So you talked about the fact that you looked for OSINT skills. And I'm just wondering, I mean, in this day and age, in this information revolution we're going through, for intelligence practitioners out there, I mean, is that just having good sort of OSINT skills and and expertise, is that just going to be like the drinking water? You just have to have it? What do you think about that? I really think so. I mean... Here's the thing. Human is like really fun too, or and like whatnot, like being able to do all of that kind of stuff. I can't even imagine. However, there's so much out there in the open source that's already online. When we talk about OSINT, we're also really talking about a specific type of investigation, those more technical investigations where you're doing things like piecing together what websites are connected to what social media accounts, to what blogs and forums, to what crypto wallets, those sorts of things. And so that's the kind of work that I think we're really looking for is those OSINT investigation skills, also sometimes called OSINT. But the other piece too is it will always be helpful to be able to get unique data access, whether it's through surveys or whatever. It's really about how do you blend those different types of intelligence? How do you build that bigger picture? But because of the explosion of information that we've seen over the last decade, that's going to continue. And I think that the question becomes, how do we use those insights to be able to better navigate and better make decisions? The other skill that I would definitely encourage people to try to develop is basic coding skills. Just even understanding how Python works is huge because another thing too is there's so much information for us to process that we have to be able to do it at scale or we're going to miss something. So we also, I think, need to really focus on, and this is what we do as well, developing technologies that can support human decision-making. Anything that is wrote in a task that's done over and over 
give it to a computer so that the human can focus on the more interesting things, being able to see the forest for the trees and being able to really understand what's happening. I think I'm going to lead us into the rapid fire round. And uh, I, like it. <laughs> I think for you, we tailored a little bit because for our audience, like being a, a rabid New Yorker and, and knowing Texans and just strong personalities, I, I wasn't aware of what a rabid Mainer you were. So uh, <laughs> we're about to give Maine some love, everyone. Yeah. Everybody, <laughs> Maine's the world. What's the next question? So, so normally we say, where's your favorite place in the world? But we're going to hone it in and say, where's your favorite place in Maine and why? Okay. My favorite place in Maine. Wow, this is actually a really hard question. Okay, my favorite place in Maine, there's a specific beach that is my favorite place in Maine. And it's my favorite beach. I'm not going to say where it is, but it's on the mid-coast. And it's because every day the colors are so different. It totally changes. It's never the same day twice. And when the tide goes all the way out, you can walk across these mud flats and actually go clamming and things like that. So that's my favorite place in Maine. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. When the camera's off, I'm going to have to ask you, but yeah, <laughs> I was going to say, we can get the real intel after this episode. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, totally. Just don't post the link. Okay. <laughs> this is next question is near and dear to, to Ryan's heart and mine, but when there's no more limitations, what would you like your next trip to be or next bucket Japan. list? Japan. Japan. Cool. And why Japan? Um, food. Uh, it's like, do I want udon? Do I want sushi? Like, I don't have to decide. Like, <laughs> you know, I definitely am somebody who travels with my stomach. And I also like going to cultures that are so different than our own and being able to explore and, you know, be a guest in somebody else's culture and learn in different ways. And I also like going places where I don't know the language. <laughs> being able to feel like that, like out of water, it just, it pushes you to learn and grow in different ways. Definitely great answer. And then last one, and then I'll, I'll let Ryan jump in. But what's something you wish you could be good at that you're not currently good at? Singing. I'm actually tone deaf. And like all of the buttons on the telephone sound the same to me. I'm a terrible singer. I am a great singer in the car, but nowhere else. <laughs> <laughs> Only when I'm by myself. I, I think that might be my answer as well. Oh my gosh. I can't think of something that I'm worse at than singing. So I can barely talk as it is. So yeah, singing. Like, I, mean, <laughs> I try to make up for it with enthusiasm, which also usually does not go well. <laughs> so, All right. So by the way, you can cheat on this next one if you want to talk about maybe something that you've done, but what book article or presentation should we all be reading or watching right now? That is another great question. So I'm one of those like crazy people that reads four books at any given time. I almost treat it like it's like flipping through TV channels and it's like, well, today, do you want to read the beach novel or do you want to read about politics? Right now, I'm actually rereading A Gentleman in Moscow. And it's just like such a fun, easy read. Just given everything that's going on in the world, I have been kind of refocusing on, on brushing up on Russian culture and history, that sort of thing. A really great book, if you're interested in learning more about disinformation, is Nothing is Real and, and Everything is Possible. It's by Peter Pomenstrov, and it's about the media ecosystem in Russia. But it's a really easy read. It reads like a novel. And it's, I think, one of those things that's just really helpful in understanding also this threat of disinformation and how it's evolved. Nice. Nice. I'll have to look at that for sure. Okay. Yeah, right. So. 
Yeah, I'm right now. I was writing that down as well. Okay, so for the next question, you know, obviously you're the CEO of this company. I know that a lot of people respect and admire you for what you're doing, to include the two of us. But there's also, I think, maybe these perceptions about CEOs that, you know, maybe I don't want to say it's easy, but just you just always have it together all the time. So this next question is. What piece of career advice would you give yourself if you were just starting out again? So the best advice that I got when I was first starting out is when you are first starting out, the highs are high and the lows are low. And it is everything that would feel like a speed bump if you were at a big organization is an earthquake. But that being said, the best advice that I've ever gotten is if you are having a bad day, if you got a rejection, if you got, you know, a meeting didn't go the way you wanted it to, you feel like you're not getting traction, wait 10 minutes and something good will happen. It's that much of a roller coaster at the beginning, especially that first year. And just keep celebrating those wins and those high moments and hang on to them when you have the low moments because you will have low moments. But I do think just knowing that if you keep trying and trust the process, be patient with yourself because nothing happens as quickly as you think it will. Trust that process and try to celebrate the high moments. And if there is a low moment, know that you could get an email that's going to change your whole day. I think that's great perspective. I need to take that on as well. So we're almost to the end. One more, if you feel comfortable, you know, answering this, this is a chance to just give some gratitude back out into the interwebs, out into the world. We talked about, you know, the admiration that we have for you, but what about you? You know, who is someone that you admire and and why? Yeah. I think that there are a lot of people that I admire. I think that I have to say who I'm most like grateful for, frankly, has been the Arab and the DCAR community. Like I literally started this with not a single client, just a faint idea of what I wanted to do. Went to a couple meetings. People were so helpful in networking. Like I just remember being nervous to reach out to somebody like Greg Hubler for if you're listening. Hi, Greg. Um, <laughs> and being like, will you please have coffee with me? And he was like, of course I'll have coffee with you. And just people who have been so generous with their time along the way. I also think one of the people who I really admire in this field is Maria Risa. She just won the Nobel Peace Prize. She's done great work with Rappler. And I think just everything she's overcome to be able to help solve this type of issue, dealing with these types of threats and attacks on her personally, it's really amazing. And it's really inspiring to see what grit and determination really looks like. Uh, That's amazing. Thank you for that. And uh, happy new year, Greg. So shout out to Greg. Yeah. And then, (laughs) (laughs) and for, for everyone listening, if you're not familiar with Arup or DCAR, so Arup, it's a mouthful. Let me see if I can get through it, but Association of International Risk Intelligence Professionals, amazing organization, full transparency. Michael and I are very involved in it, believe in it. And DCAR, amazing as well. DC Analyst Roundtable, just a phenomenal group of intelligence professionals. So yeah, thanks for the shout out for those as well. Okay, last one here. This was Michael's idea. I love this. It's a call to action. So for anyone listening, you know, you can just say anything you want right now, but what what's your call to action for our friends, peers, colleagues, people working in this space out there right now, what would you say? <laughs> Sorry, I'm laughing because what I want to say is be nice to each other on the internet. Um, so <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> no, um, <laughs> that's it. No, I mean, I think 
like disinformation, this is a huge issue and we're all going to have to work together to solve it, right? Like we have to be skeptical about what we're reading and what we're sharing at an individual level. We have to make sure that we're not falling for it when we're making decisions for our organizations and we're really navigating this threat in a smart way. And so I would just encourage folks to do your part and to be able to read critically, to be able to mitigate disinformation where you can, to be able to also be empathetic when people like me sometimes even, even though I do this all day long, fall for it, like understand that the people who are spreading disinformation and truly believe it, they've been targeted and helping them and being empathetic is really important as well. Yeah, I love that. So be nice to everyone. Everyone on the internet is definitely going into the Hall of Fame as well. But yeah, <laughs> yeah just appealing to everyone's sense of duty. We all have to do our part. I, I love that. I think that's really powerful. Okay. Well, that was fun. So I think we're going to wrap up. But Michael, just before we do, any any alibis from you or any follow-up? Yeah, one alibi, just following up on uh, something Lisa said earlier for our audience out there, because getting great feedback from everyone and just one they hit us on was to clarify any acronyms we hit. I think we've really been good so far. Just one really basic one that we hit was KPI, Key Performance Indicators. And for anyone who's new to the field, that's just trying to figure ways to quantify your success and targets what you're trying to attain. That's it. Back to you guys. Yeah, no, great point. So last question, Lisa, I promise this time, what are you currently working on at Aletheia Group? You know, where can people find you if they want to connect or learn more about what you're doing? Yeah. So if you want to learn more about what we're doing, I definitely encourage you to go to our website. I feel like I'm on a podcast advertisement right now, but it's <laughs> www.aletheagroup.com. Um, we do post public case studies there from time to time and um, things that we've found just out in the wild that we think can help people understand this issue. If you want to find me, I'm usually on Twitter. I have a tab open right now. And my Twitter handle is at Lisa C. Kaplan. So feel free to say hello. I respond to my DMs. So if you, I can ever be helpful or if you ever have a question, just reach out. And then what we're working on right now, we're in stealth mode on a few things. But I would say what we're really focusing on especially headed into the 2022 elections is doing some public interest work and being able to help people understand how they're being targeted as voters on issues like when, where, and how to vote. All right. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. We are so incredibly grateful that you came on. It's just been a privilege to have you. Yeah, it's our pleasure. And I mean, thank you for the important and incredible work that you and Aletheia Group are doing. So thank you for that. For everyone else listening, Happy New Year. We look forward to connecting soon. We'll talk soon, everyone. Thanks. Take care. Thank you.